you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to Genesis chapter 20. First book of the Bible, 20th chapter, Genesis chapter 20. I had every intention of doing all of chapter 20 in the first seven verses of chapter 21, but we'll just do chapter 20 this morning. I think there's enough there for us. When I was uh, a child... For Christmas one year, we got this thing called Domino Rally. I don't know if you've ever heard of Domino Rally. But if you know dominoes where you kind of set them up side by side, and if you knock one over, they all start to fall. Well, this was kind of that sort of amped up a little bit. And there were all these little plastic dominoes that really didn't stand up that well and were frustrating. But uh, they had different mechanisms. So you'd push the domino and it would go, and when it would hit something, this rocket would shoot off. Or um, it would go up some stairs and down some other stairs. And it was it was really hard. And I, I remember being frustrated more by that toy than enjoying it because if you just missed one up, it would fall all over the place. And sometimes you'd have everything set up, and you'd hit that first domino, and it would go, and it would go to this mechanism where it's supposed to do something really cool, and nothing would happen. Or, or you'd hit it, and there'd just be one domino that would fall the wrong way, and everything would would stop, and it just didn't go the way that you had planned it to go. I think that's still in my parents' basement, and uh, I don't plan on getting it out for my kids to play with because I don't want to be frustrated by it. But I think that as we look at Genesis chapter 20, I almost feel like Abraham is that domino that messes everything up. (laughs) Everything seems to be falling and going the way that it's supposed to, and then all of a sudden Abraham makes a decision, and it seems like everything is going to stop that the plans of God are going to be ruined, that that everything is ceasing because of Abraham's foolish choice. I, I think I, I point that out because sometimes I feel that way. Sometimes I feel like God has purposes, he has plans, and, and all I do is get in the way. All I do is, is make mistakes and not do what he's called me to do or or mess something up, or, or, I, or else I have that fear that if I try this, it's probably just not going to go the way that I want it to. I don't know if you have that fear of failure, maybe just an understanding of my humanness that I just feel so weak sometimes. I feel like I am going to mess everything up. Uh, Hopefully there's some of you like me that feel that, and I think that this passage speaks to that. And I think that what it tells us is this. God's plans are not dependent on you and me. That's the simple message, I think, of Genesis chapter 20. Not just chapter 20, but probably the whole life of Abraham that we've been studying. God's plans are not dependent on you and me. Now, if it sounds like I'm saying God doesn't need you to accomplish his plans, um, or maybe it sounds like I'm saying that um, your sin doesn't mess up the greater purposes of God, or maybe it sounds like I'm saying that you are not indispensable, that God can accomplish his desires and his designs without you. If it sounds like that's what I'm saying, then, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> I think we live in a, in, a, in a world, in a culture that wants us to, to, to tell us we couldn't do it without you. You are indispensable. And what God says is, I can do whatever I want, whether you're in on it or not. God's plans are not dependent on you and me. That may make you say, then, why should I even take part in God's plan? Why do I even try if he's just going to do whatever he wants? And I think that's one way to respond. I don't think it's the right way to respond. Another way would be to 
just breathe a nice sigh of relief and to say, I'm not going to be that domino that just messes everything up. I might mess up, yeah, but it's not going to mess up God's plans. It could be that, that you would say, that's the best news that I've heard all week. I mean, that frees me up to actually serve God in with joy and with with rest and with, with peace. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here and applying this. I think maybe let's let's just get in here and, and read the passage uh, together. But but again, just keep this idea in your mind. God's plans are not dependent on you and me. Let's read all of Genesis chapter 20. Uh, it's a good story. It's pretty clear here in the passage. So just zero in with me and, and let's read it together. Genesis 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward toward the territory of the Negev, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander, from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. While you're still looking in the passage, look at verses 1 and 2 again with me. From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. Now, if you feel like you're having deja vu, like 
didn't we read this before? You are just simply remembering Genesis chapter 12. Uh, this is where Abraham lies to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about Sarah being his wife and says that she is his sister so that he can protect his own life. You're going to have deja vu again when his son, Isaac, does the same thing. So this happens three times. Now, you remember in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah had landed in Egypt because of a famine that was in the land. Here in Genesis 20, we don't really know why they left. Remember, they were they had spent a lot of time at the, at the Oaks of Mamre. They had been there for a while, and for some reason they're sojourning. Um, it's not really said why, but they land in Gerar, which is actually still within the Promised Land. So they haven't left uh, the land of Canaan. And Abraham again lies and says that Sarah is his sister. Now, he seems to like this method for protecting himself. Again, this is what he's doing. He's trying to protect his, his own life, and this was sort of his go-to method. Um, Abraham is not unlike us, though, is he? We have sinful tendencies. We have the sins that so easily beset us, areas in our lives that the streams of sin and disbelief have flowed down so many times that it feels almost impossible for those for not to follow that well-worn channel. And so Abraham slips into this pattern that he had often slipped into. The only problem here is that there's a lot more at stake than simply Abraham's life. He's trying to preserve his own life, but his fear, his unbelief could have terrible consequences. I mean, it could have terrible consequences that not just affect him, that not just affect Sarah, that not just affect Abimelech, but that actually would affect God's entire rescue plan, God's entire plan of fulfilling this promise to Abraham to give him a seed through which he would save the whole world. But before we think about that massive consequence, let me just point out a, 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 another couple. First, we should note that, that he places the purity of his marriage in danger. Um, he has given his wife to a foreign king, and she's been placed in a harem. So he's placed that purity in danger. He's placed his wife in danger. And now he's also, we're going to see in the text, he puts Abimelech in danger. How'd you like God to come to you in a dream and say, you're a dead man? Uh, I mean, Abimelech is in danger now. Why? Because of Abraham's sin. That's what has led to it. But as we hinted, the greatest threat posed by Abraham's disobedience is actually to the promised seed of Sarah and thereby the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. We could even say that Abraham's decision actually could have had dire consequences for us. If we're following the timeline correctly, let's think about this. It's just a few months back, we might assume, God comes to Abraham and Sarah and he says, in about a year's time, Sarah, you're going to have a child. And if Sarah is going to have a baby, she's going to have to be pregnant for nine months. If that makes sense, then about this time is when she needs to conceive this child. The problem is she's not in Abraham's tent. She's in Abimelech's harem. So there's a, that's, that's what is being shown here. There's a, a major threat to the promise being fulfilled because of what Sarah has done. I mean, for 25 years... We've been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled, for Sarah to give birth to the son that God has promised. And now, it seems like at the last minute, when everything is about to fall together, all the dominoes are falling in place, at the last minute, the whole thing seems to have potential that it's going to just totally 
fall apart. We thought it was going to be resolved, and now it's 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 all up in the air. It's like you're watching a movie and you you think that the credits are about to roll because everything's tied up real nicely, and then all of a sudden the villain shows up again, and everything just goes haywire once more, and and th- we have to resolve the situation all over. So Abraham's fear, his old habits, he's fallen back into them. And, and have they have they messed up God's plan? Have they completely thwarted what God wanted to do? Kind of that voiceover that you maybe remember from the old Batman movie. Is this the end for our heroes? You know, is this is this it? Is it all over now? What's amazing is that unbeknownst to Abraham and Sarah, I assume they were sleeping when God shows up to Abimelech in a dream. So unbeknownst to them, God is working. And he's working to protect them. If you had to put one characteristic about who God is in this passage, he is a protector. God is the protector. First, God protects the purity of marriage. He protects the purity of marriage. Read with me verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. He tells Abimelech, you are as good as dead because you have taken another man's wife. I just can't help but notice how zealous God is for the marriage covenant here. The issue is, is he, the first issue that he brings up isn't the seed. He doesn't even talk about it. He says, you're about to break the marriage covenant between Abraham and Sarah, and that is important. He's laying the groundwork for what's going to show up in Exodus 20 as one of the ten core commandments of God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. God is protecting marriage. Now, you look at the Old Testament, and whatever we don't understand about the Old Testament's portrayal of marriage, because there are some things I just don't completely understand with with people having more than one wife and all of that going on. Whatever is going on there, what we know is that God desires to protect the covenant that is made between one man and one woman. And Abraham has failed to protect it. He has failed to do that for the second time now. And so God steps in and protects his marriage for him. I don't have any data, I don't have any statistics to back this up, but I feel like in our culture there has become a fascination with uh, almost an acceptance of adultery. I don't know if that's true or not. I just feel like there has been a shift in media, in television. It's just assumed that people are going to be unfaithful, that no marriage will last for its entire life, uh, with for its entire duration being pure. But God forbid that we would ever think the same way. God forbid, like Lot, that, that that type of thinking would ever seep into us, that that would be something that our moral compass is pulled towards, that we would say, yeah, that's just going to happen. That's just part of life. That's a twisted way of thinking. God here protects the covenant of marriage zealously, unlike Abraham. I, I think the call then for us is... And we, we looked at this in Genesis 12, and I think it's, it's proper to bring it up again, that, that men, as, as husbands, we should not follow Abraham's example. We should follow Abraham's faith. He is an example to us in faith. But by the grace of God, may we surpass Abraham in zeal for our marriage covenant. 
May we cut off our hands, as Jesus says, gouge out our eyes in order to protect our marriage. May we say, I would rather be that dead man than disgrace my wife and disgrace our marriage. God is zealous for the purity of marriage, and we should be too. We should be more like our Heavenly Father than like our father Abraham. But not unlike this story here, it's often that God steps in and protects our marriage for us. But what a beautiful truth here that that men were not perfect. Women were not perfect. We, we, we mess up. We fail. But, but God steps in here in the midst of Abraham's poor decision, and God says, Abraham, you've been too foolish in this moment to protect your own marriage, so I will protect it for you. I will come in and I am going to stop Abimelech from doing what he wants to do. So God is protecting the marriage covenant, but we are still called to do it. So God protects marriage, um, the purity of marriage. He also protects the righteous. This is kind of a carryover from chapter 19. Um, You see that God shows up and says to Abimelech, you're a dead man. And Abimelech, it says verse 4 very clearly, now Abimelech had not approached her. Abimelech hadn't done anything wrong. Except for taking another man's, you know, just taking this woman into his harem. But that's a whole other thing I don't totally understand. But it says here, he says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. He says, I haven't done anything wrong, God. Are you going to punish people who haven't done anything wrong? And... God protects the God protects Abimelech here. He he may have sinned, but he sins in in ignorance. And so God calls him to repent, to show fruits of repentance by returning Sarah, and then by bringing um, gifts and making restitu- restitution with Abraham and Sarah. And yet, what's interesting here is while we see that 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 Abimelech is saying he's innocent, God is the one who has kept him innocent. But read what he says. He says. God responds to, to Abimelech's claim to be innocent. He says, then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have not done this. God says, I, I saw that. I, I know what's going on. I am in control of this situation. I know that you have not done anything wrong. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Very interesting to note that doesn't say from sinning against Sarah, but from sinning against me. It was a sin against God. All sin is ultimately against God, not others. But he says, I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So as much as Abimelech claims his innocence, God says, you are innocent. You didn't sin because I stopped you. He says, I know you didn't sin because I kept you from sinning. I kept you from touching her. It seems like God actually um, provided some sort of physical illness of some kind, because later on in in verse 17, uh, Abraham prays to God, and it says that God healed Abimelech. So something's going on that's keeping Abimelech. He's he's sick in some way. We could speculate, but it's hard to know exactly what's, what's going on here. But he is kept from sinning against Sarah. God keeps him from doing that. I think there's a wonderful principle here to think about, and it's it's just this idea that how many times has God preserved our innocence for us? How many times has God stepped in and kept us from making foolish, sinful choices and decisions that would have far-reaching effects? 
I can think of a few moments in my life. I can look back and say, wow, that was almost supernatural. The, the way that God stepped in and kept me from making that choice. If I would have made it, because in making that choice, it would have had, it would have had far reaching effects that I didn't recognize in that moment. And I can see God's hand that he stepped in and he rescued me out of that situation. Those are the ones that I see. What about the countless ones that we don't know? Where God is preserving and protecting our innocence. He's protecting us. He's keeping us righteous. He is keeping us from sin. And maybe more appropriately in this situation, how many times does God uh, intervene for us and keep others from sinning against us? God steps in on behalf of Abraham and Sarah and keeps Abimelech from harming them. How often does that happen in our lives? That God is in control, keeping us keeping us from being harmed by other people. I mean, if you don't see anything else, you see that God is in control throughout this whole thing. God protects the innocent. God is, is in control when it looks like everything is spinning out of control, like the, the domino set has been stopped and all the plans are thwarted. God, in the middle of the night, while everyone's sleeping, shows up and takes matters into his own hands. The plans and the purposes of God will not be thwarted by our disobedience. God's plans are not dependent on you and on me. I think about, um, I think I'm man enough to admit that I've read the book Pride and Prejudice, uh, whether or not you are. If that's okay, or have seen the movie. Um, but there's this part in that where the Bennett family, who is kind of the central uh, family, uh, a, a crisis arises, a, um, what's the word, a scandal of sorts comes up in the family. And they have no idea what to do. And they are all essentially losing their minds about this, trying to resolve the situation, and they don't know what to do. And unbeknownst to them, Mr. Darcy, who is the, the knight in shining armor in this, you know, the heartthrob of all heartthrobs. Uh, Mr. Darcy is in the background solving all their problems, taking care of everything that, that, that is causing problems. And so um, in the midst of this terrible situation where they have no idea what's going on and everything seems to be spinning out of control, there is someone who has taken matters into his own hands and is, is controlling the situation unbeknownst to them. And they only find out a little bit later who it is, and some of them never knew what he did. I share that illustration because it's helpful. I share that illustration for the sake of my wife because she loves that movie uh, and the book. But if you've seen it, it, it makes sense. So in the midst of when things are spinning out of control, God is God is working. And sometimes we're over here and we have no idea what's going on. We think we've messed everything up, but he's just he's working. He's he's in control of things. I mean, God is, is strong enough that he gets into Abimelech's dreams and has a conversation with him enough that, that he gets this man to repent. God's plans are not dependent on you and me in any way, shape, or form. At the core, though, God, God is protecting marriage. God is protecting the innocent. But at the core, God has stepped in to protect his promise. He is not about to let Abimelech defile Sarah and cast a shadow over the fulfillment of his promise, over the fulfillment of his word. And so he steps in and he plagues Abimelech in his house. And he keeps Abimelech from touching Sarah, this could have gone terrible. This could have been a, a, an extremely bad situation. But God steps in and keeps it from happening. 
and he does it, it says, I think another key verse is verse 16. Abimelech says to Sarah, after this is all over, he says, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Why? It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Sarah is vindicated, but even more so, God is. God has shown that, that he is going to fulfill his promise and that he, he, he stops this from happening. It, it, it set, was set into motion because of Abraham's fear and unbelief, and God says, I cannot let this happen. He steps in, he stops it, he protects Sarah and her innocence, and he protects his name and his glory and his plan. God is our protector. He protects the purity of marriage, he protects the righteous, and he protects his promises. Now, having watched Abraham over the past few weeks and months, and then reading this passage, I just want to give kind of, I think this is the application that, that I really want to draw, that, that, again, I'm still kind of working this out, so work it out with me. Uh, we've got small group this week, and I, we do, we talk about the sermon, so I'm looking, to, to, to looking forward already to talking about this one, but let's talk about it. I think this is the lesson that we learn here from Abraham, and it's this. We are free to be human. <laughs> we are free to be human. And in saying that, what I'm saying is we are free to be imperfect. We are free to fail. We are free to be inconsistent. We are free to fall flat on our face. We are free to step into the exact same trap of unbelief that God just rescued us from. We are free to counsel someone and point them down the right road and then turn and walk down the path that we just told them not to walk down. We are free to be human. We are free to be imperfect. We are free to fail. Now, that's that may sound a little strange to you. Am I saying that you should just kind of sin and not feel any remorse over it? that you should willfully and purposely make decisions that you know are contrary to God's will? Of course not. That is not at all what I am saying. Uh, obviously, Abraham missed out on something by his decision. Uh, look at what happens with Abimelech. I mean, Abimelech, again, just like with Pharaoh, shows up and says to Abraham, what have you done? I, I love this, this one phrase. He says, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. So here's Abimelech coming to this man who has just been, he's just been told as a prophet. And he says, why are you doing stuff to me that should not be done to anyone, Abraham? This, this is wrong. What should Abraham have done? Well, he should have walked into the land and he said, wow, it doesn't look like there's any fear of God in this place. Maybe I can be that one righteous man that brings the fear of God here. Maybe I can demonstrate that God is my protector. Maybe I can show forth who God is by my faithfulness. And instead he says, or I could just lie, and maybe that'll work. He's faithless. He had an opportunity, and he failed. And so I'm not saying that you walk into a situation like Abraham, and you have two equal choices. Well, I could follow God, or I could not follow God. Well, he's still going to accomplish his purposes, so I'll just not follow God. No, that's never the right choice. But, but follow me with this. We've seen Abraham make some, some foolish and faithless decisions. But we have also seen him make some extremely faith-filled decisions. We have watched him scale the mountains, and we have watched him drown in the sea of his own stupidity. Um, and we're reminded that the story is not about Abraham. The story is about God. 
It's, it's about a God who is full of grace, who is abounding in steadfast love and kindness and patience, who sovereignly protects his friend Abraham and protects his own glory and protects his plans, whatever happens. I think Abraham learned early on that he was, he was a part of something that was way outside of himself. That he was, that he got caught up in God's plans, but it really was not at all about him, and it wasn't dependent on him at all. And his knowledge of that, it doesn't cause him to purposely rebel. It doesn't cause him to say, well, God is going to do whatever he wants, so I'll just do whatever I want. No, I th- he still strives to please God. He wants to follow after God. And I think he does it with a boldness that doesn't rely on himself, that doesn't rely on his abilities, that doesn't rely on him having to be perfect. Let me share an illustration that maybe will help you get what I'm driving at. My, my friend, uh, Nate, one of my best friends, we were roommates at Moody Bible Institute together. Nate taught me how to drive stick shift while we were um, in college. I'd never driven stick shift before. I'd driven a tractor, but I didn't know how to drive down the road uh, in a car. And so one day we went out. And, and if you've never driven stick shift, it, it's not rocket science, but it's also not the easiest thing in the world. It's not something you get on your first try. And so you need to have a good teacher because you're going to mess up. You're going to grind some gears. You're going to stall the thing out in the middle of traffic. You need someone who's who's going to work with you. You don't need someone who, when you stall it out, they say, scoot over. I'm coming over. I'm driving, you know, <laughs> or when you grind the gears, they get all upset. You're messing my car up. You got to have a good teacher. And I knew right away that Nate was a good teacher. Uh, we took his cutlass out on I-94 outside of downtown Chicago and got stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic in Chicago. And this is my first time learning how to drive stick shift. And no matter how many times I ground the gears, no matter how many times I stalled the engine, Nate just sat there patiently and tried to walk me through what I needed to do next. And I grew. I, I learned. I learned because when I went out, Nate didn't expect me to be perfect. He said, he said here's the keys. You're going to figure it out. And so I was, I was free to learn. And you know why I was free to learn? Because I was free to fail. I, I was free to mess the whole thing up. I was free to get stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic and stall that car out probably 50 times, just trying to get from one point to another. I don't even know how far we traveled, maybe a mile. Um, but I stalled it a lot. Uh, even greater than, than Nate's gracious and patient attitude, though, we, we have the freedom to fail because God is not only gracious and patient, but he is in control. He's our protector. And if we do mess up, he can come in and sweep up all the pieces. He can come in and take care of, of the mess that we make of things. Our God is in heaven, the Psalms say, and he does whatever he pleases. God's plans are not dependent on you and me. Do we want to fall? No. None of us want to fall. We want to do what God's called us to do. But I don't want to be so scared of failing that I don't ever try to do something. We have two cars in our house. We have a a van that is is not really ours. It was given to us by Andrew's parents. They own it. Um, It's got Illinois license plates on it because it's not really our car. It's their car. Not that they ever drive it. They have graciously given it to us. Uh, We also have a, a 2000 Ford Taurus that was given to us by my parents when we got married. So that was about nine years ago. Uh, a 2000 car is 12 years old now, if you can believe that. So that car's getting old. 
Both of our cars had issues this week. Something went wrong with both of them. When something goes wrong with the van, I don't touch it because it's not my car. And I don't know what I'm doing. I've never popped the hood on that van ever in my life. When something goes wrong, I take it to the dealer because that's what Harold has told me to do and because I don't know what to do with it. Now, the Taurus is something that I feel like I can, hey, just give it a go, try and figure out what to do with it because it's old and, and I just feel like I have this freedom to, to work on it, to, to give it a try. And if, it, if I mess it up, well, I mess it up and we'll get it fixed and it's, it's not that big a deal. And so I popped the hood on that this week, and I tried to fix it, and uh, I rode my bike to church this morning. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I have a plan, and tomorrow it may get fixed. Don't worry, it's okay that you laugh. But, but the reason that I popped the hood on the Taurus is because I feel like I have the freedom to mess it up. I'm not going in there whacking it with a hammer saying, let me break something so I can try and fix it. But at the same time, there's this freedom to say, I'm going to give it a go, and we'll see, how, we'll see what happens. In some strange way, and I know illustrations don't, but I feel like that's that's what God is allowing us to do. He says, try. Just give it a try. Take take a bold step of faith, and you might fall flat on your face. But I'm in control. I will protect what's going on. Now, there are often consequences to our sins. There are consequences to what we do. But Abraham is slowly learning that God is in control. He is our protector. He's going to watch over us. And we are going to mess up. God's plans are not dependent on you and me. Why? Because we are going to mess up. We are going to fail. If God's plans are dependent on us, then they will never be accomplished. God's plans for salvation were coming through Abraham. Abraham needed to be as faithful as he could be, but it had nothing to do with Abraham. He learned that back in Genesis 15 when God said, I will do this. God's the one that goes to the sacrifices. God says, this covenant is contingent on me. So we are free. We are free to be like Abraham. We are free to, as Luther said, sin and sin boldly. And then ask for forgiveness just as boldly. I really feel this, this freedom from Abraham. Maybe it's, it's my, um, my, the fact that I'm a recovering legalist in some ways. I think we all are recovering legalists. Legalists meaning that we try to do things to make God happy with us. That if I do this and don't do this, then God loves me more. And if I do this or don't do this, then he doesn't love me as much. I'm just trying to make God happy. But the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus is that he has done everything. That he is our protector. He is our savior. He comes and he rescues us. And it gives us the freedom to say, I don't have to. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm saved by grace alone. So if you came in here and you're, you're just so frustrated because you feel like you're the one that's always failing, like you're the domino that's always messing things up and God is never happy with you, well, you've got it all wrong. He's not happy with you if you're trying to do it on your own. The beauty is that, that just as God steps in and is the protector and takes care of everything, Jesus steps into history and he becomes the perfect man, the one righteous man through whom all are saved. He never fails like we do. He knows that we fail, but then he comes and he, he takes the penalty for our sin by dying in our place. And so are we saved by doing more, by never failing, by being perfect? God's plans are not dependent on us. We are saved by faith, and we depend on Jesus. That's, what, that's how we are saved. And if that's true, if, if we are accepted by God, if we are his children, 
and he will never disown us. Uh, we talked about this in um, in youth group, and we talked about it uh, in Sunday school, that, that beautiful picture of John 10, that, that we are held in Jesus' hand, and we are held in the hand of the Father, and and God and the Father are one, and we are we are held in his grasp, and He will we will never fall out of that. If that's true, then you know what we have freedom to do? We have freedom to be human. We have freedom to fail, to just give it a go, see what happens. And if we mess up, God's going to clean up the pieces. He's going to take care of, of what we do. And so there's this boldness. I feel like as, as a church and as individuals, we can take steps of faith that just, it doesn't make sense necessarily. But we know that God's in control. We know that he is faithful. He's going to care for us. And, and when we sin, we come and say, wow, God, I repent. I, I really messed that up. And he says, I, I know. I was working in the background. I was protecting you. I was, I was watching over you. I'm taking care of you. There are some consequences to that sin. And yet I, I'm in control. I'm watching over you. And so I, I just have learned as we've watched Abraham grow in this journey of faith, I feel like he gets bolder and bolder to maybe take some steps. And God is preparing him for, for something like Genesis 22 when he calls him to take Isaac and to sacrifice the son of promise. How do you walk through that? Unless you've walked with God in this way and you suddenly realize I can trust him. And, and I know that he is my protector. And I know that even if, even if I do sacrifice Isaac, that God can raise him from the dead. There's a boldness that we have that we can step into. Can I share one more illustration? Um, last time I shared an illustration from a Disney movie, uh, it, it seemed to go over fairly well with the kids, and I was thinking about one this morning. Um, <laughs> you know the movie Toy Story with Buzz Lightyear and, and Woody the, um, the cowboy? There's this scene where, where Buzz is on the bed for the first time, and they're all meeting him. Do you remember this? The spaceship has supposedly crash-landed on the bed, and, and Buzz comes out, and he's in his you know space ranger attitude, and, and Woody's a little perturbed, and all the other toys are just looking around saying, wow, this guy's amazing. And they're checking out all the stuff, the laser, and, you know, every, and all of a sudden they see he has wings. And they say, you can fly? He says, yes, I can fly. And Woody says, you can't. You can't fly. You don't know how to fly. And they, they're just, he says, yes, I can fly. And so if you remember this scene, maybe no one else remembers this, but, but Buzz Lightyear comes to the edge of the bed, and he, he jumps off in an attempt to fly. And what's he do? He jumps off the bed and he, he hits his head on a, on a playground ball, bounces into the air. I think he lands on like a hot wheel and goes down and ends up flying through the air and getting caught on some toy that spins him around and he gets thrown off and he, he lands on the bed and he says, I, I can fly. <laughs> and what is, you remember what Woody says? He says, that's not flying. That's falling with style. You remember that? And I, I think that's all God wants us to do to a certain extent. We're not, we're not called to fly. We can't. But we can fall with style. We can fall in such a way that God knows what's around us, that he can allow us to bounce off a ball and land on a, on a hot wheel, and suddenly it looks like we accomplished something great. And it just all happens because we took a bold step and said, I'm going to try to fly, and God protects, and he's watching over. He takes care of that whole situation. And so I believe that the, the call that, that just is welling up in me that I want to give to us as a church and as individuals is to just, just give it a go. Try. God is your protector. He's in control. Abraham messed up. We're going to mess up. You will mess up. You 
are not perfect. If you came in here and you thought that, that's the one message you need to hear, you are not perfect. You are going to fail, but God never fails. And God's plans are not dependent on you and me, but he will use us. He will use us when we trust him to do it. So I pray that that is a spirit that fills us as a church and as individuals. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing and and close out our service. Lord God, I I thank you for the encouragement that I've received from this passage. I pray that it just, that you would teach us in this moment. I I know that my illustrations and explanation of this passage are are weak in many ways, but I I trust, Lord, your Holy Spirit. I have the, the freedom to fail in exposition because you will clean up the mess. You are the protector. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that even now. You would piece together what is true in our hearts. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.